Welcome to the Leadership Now podcast with Dr. Aaron Rock. Aaron has served as a pastor, a chaplain, a professor, a writer, and a speaker. On this show, we talk about the nuts and bolts of theology, church life, cultural issues, pastoral leadership, ethics, and other relevant matters that will help you to lead better now. Over the centuries of church history, many committed Christians have fallen away from the faith, with a few even becoming antagonistic against biblical Christianity. Even in our own generation, it's not uncommon for pastors to turn into unrepentant sinners, or for Bible professors to come out in denial of the, author- of the authority of Scripture, or for congregants to break up with Jesus. In this episode, we discuss the signs of apostasy and how to ensure it doesn't happen to us. So Aaron, talk a little bit about why this topic is so important. Well, thanks for uh, hosting today, by the way, Eric. I, I know Chris is uh, on vacation. He's always on vacation. <laughs> But uh, he's, he it. he's on vacation. <laughs> he's a hardworking guy. He's been putting a lot of effort, by the way, into our classical Christian school, which we're starting this fall, which is really, really exciting. Uh, but thanks for filling in. So my guest host, Eric Oltrop, he's the man of the hour. That's the voice you're listening to. Do what I can. And yes, I'm Aaron Rock. So talk a bit about this subject. So obviously there's a lot of critical attacks being levied against biblical Christianity by culture, by political machinery, and even from within the church where many left-leaning or liberal churches are attacking the veracity of scripture, the nature of salvation. Now, this isn't extremely new because throughout church history, there, there have always been assaults against biblical Christianity, but it does seem to be heating up. In, in recent memory, if you go back, let's say, 100 years, there there was less venom directed toward the Christian faith in the 1920s, 30s, 40s, 50s than there is today. So because of this, I think a lot of people are under pressure. Christians are pretty much aware by now that they are in the minority. Mm-hmm. And I, I want to sort of help them to galvanize their faith and not to fall into the traps that the enemy is setting for them. So that's one reason why I think this topic is really important. Another reason is the Bible warns us to be careful not to fall away. One passage that I'll share with the listeners is 1 Corinthians 15. And at the very beginning of that chapter, it says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand. Now, those are interesting statements. So they received it. These are people that owned the faith and stand, meaning they had staked their lives on it, by which you are being saved So we often speak of salvation past tense because we like to focus on justification, but because salvation also includes our sanctification and eventual glorification, there is a sense in which we were saved and are being saved and will be saved in the ultimate sense in the future. So that's what he's talking about there. But then it says, if this introduces a conditional clause, if you hold fast to the word, I preach to you unless you believed in vain. The reason why that warning is issued is because there will be some who, quote unquote, believed in vain. They will believe, they will stand, they will claim to be bona fide Christians, but they will not persevere in the faith. And we'll talk about this a little bit later, but they will be outed or out themselves as fakes, as not being the real deal, people that aren't genuine, bona fide believers. And so there, there is a sense in which we can have the assurance of, of our salvation. And, and again, I will discuss that momentarily, but there's also a sense in which we have to live in a state of constant assessment of our lives to make sure that we are in fact the real deal. The third reason, Eric, is because I've seen some people that have been very dear to me apostatize from the Christian faith, people who have served in various levels of leadership, people I've been to school with, and, you know, it breaks your heart when you see people walk away from Jesus, some of whom become very antagonistic toward the Christian faith, even enemies of the cross of Christ. And I don't want to see that happen again. For those that do ultimately fall away and abandon the Christian faith or are tempted to fall away from the Christian faith, it might be that they need to be evangelized, meaning that they're not 
genuine bona fide believers, and they need to be reminded of the true gospel of Jesus Christ. So if a person is teetering on the brink, so to speak, of apostasy, who's under the sound of my voice right now, I want this podcast to serve as a warning to them to pull back, to galvanize their faith, and or perhaps to put their true and abiding faith in the Lord Jesus Christ for the first time. Yeah, it's a good warning. So I'm positive that in your 40 plus years as a Christian uh, and a pastor, and I'm sure you've seen more than a few folks fall away from the faith. So can you talk about that a little bit and people you've seen uh, kind of walk away? I was I was first exposed to apostasy when I was a child, when a dear, dear relative of mine and, and some other folks in the church that I was part of as a child abandoned the Christian faith. And it was quite shocking. I'd never seen that before. And the long-term consequences of that impact upon relationships and that certain mourning that you go through as you have fond memories of a person that maybe taught you the Bible or interacted with you as a brother or sister in Christ who now is fighting against the things of God or living an outward rebellion against God. So I've witnessed that. When I was in Bible college and seminary, uh, one of my best professors, a very competent teacher, uh, abandoned the faith, as did another prominent staff person. Now, they didn't abandon it that I know of in the sense of like immediately coming out and saying, I deny the Trinity, I deny the Lord Jesus Christ, but they practically abandoned the faith and then later their belief system kind of fell apart or denigrated. So a lot of times when people talk about apostasy, they would say, well, apostasy is just the formal ongoing abandonment of creedal orthodox biblical Christianity. It's it's abandonment of truth. I don't agree with that. I think if you look at scripture, apostasy can also come in the form of a person that abandons the moral standards, the virtues of the Christian faith, who walks in habitual ongoing sin, even while they may still profess to believe certain things that are orthodox, or maybe all major things that are orthodox. So an apostate can be someone who abandons the content of scripture or the application of scripture generally I would say they tend to abandon the application of scripture before the content of scripture, but one necessarily leads to the diminishment of the other. Right. And I've, I've seen that. I, I, I know of some guys that I was in Bible college and seminary with that were very gifted men, far more gifted than me in many ways who had a ton of potential and were being sought out by churches upon graduation who are not, in any way, shape, or form walking with Christ today. And so this this is very real. And it is it is jarring at times to think that men who taught me, taught us the word of God, now rail against it. Uh, by the way, Eric, I, I have noticed anecdotally that almost everyone that I've seen abandon the Christian faith has at some point or another fallen into either substance abuse or sexual addiction. So there, there is a sense in which orthodox belief, because orthodox belief is supposed to be applied, holds us in place. But when we deny orthodoxy, we fall into sins of the flesh much more easily. And then it, the, the inverse is also true. When a person believes the right thing, but doesn't shore up their moral life and starts to engage in sins of the flesh, that starts to diminish their orthodox beliefs as well. So again, at the risk of repeating myself, there is an inextricable link between orthodoxy and orthopraxy, meaning that proper belief and proper living must necessarily go hand in hand. And when you dump one, Typically, it's not too long before you dump the other. Mm -hmm. You mentioned uh, you mentioned your two pa two uh, of your profs left the faith practically, and uh, I also went to a year of, of Bible college. And I think after a few years after I left, I thought it was absolutely wild um, just how many people I saw friends, people I considered friends, people I did ministry with. Right. Just they started to post brow raising things, and then. Before you know it, they were all out either 
practicing homosexual lifestyles or affirming that or like you said into substance abuse and it was it was jarring for me i i didn't really expect that no one right. really warned me about that but um yeah it was odd yeah and I, i've thought about that a lot too why, why it almost seems and I mean, i've never done statistical research on it but it almost seems that more people that go to bible college and seminary or study for ministry or who at some point are quote unquote all in fall away from the faith and those that just sort of live out the duration of their lives and the everyday rhythms of the church, you know, like lay people. Yeah. Now that, that may not be true. Maybe it's just, maybe it's just more evident when someone that you have higher expectations for, but training for ministry falls away. It's more difficult to, to accept that than someone that's just sort of warming up pew, so to speak. But part of, part of the, part of the reason for that, and this is just my own thinking on it is I think some people do struggle with doubt and struggle with sin and they go to Bible college or seminary thinking that that will fix it and it doesn't mm, fix it. And right. so they fall away. And then I think there are some Bible colleges and seminaries that, and I say this carefully, but they tend to do a little bit of damage to our faith because what they do is they, they teach you, a little bit about this and a little bit about that. They tend to survey the scriptures and give you an idea of all the different viewpoints on things, but they don't necessarily help you to develop deep and abiding convictions about what's right and wrong. It's almost, you know, typically when I've been in theology classes in my formal training, it's like, well, here's five views on this and five views on that. Okay, let's move on to the next subject, but nothing's taught convictionally. Right. It's more it's more academic. Mm -hmm. Like let's survey the comparative views on whatever it might be, soteriology, pneumatology. Typically when we preach, we expect to present truth, present good theological content, but also to deliver it convictionally and applicationally. So I, I think that one of the challenges of some Bible colleges and seminaries is actually in their pedagogy. In the way they teach, they are almost creating confusion in a lot of students by just making the study of Scripture a bit of an academic exercise without necessarily driving home. Like I, I, I'm not sure there were very many professors I had that really demonstrated very much conviction about things. It tended to be more men that you respected intellectually, academically, that, you know, had a lot of good insight into Bible history or the languages or exegesis, but didn't necessarily seem to really own it for right. lack of a better term. Yeah, I relate to that. My experience is much was much the same. Um, just a lot of here's this view, this view, this interpretation and and then move on, which obviously doesn't produce conviction or uh give application to how you're supposed to live out your faith. So some would say these people that have, have walked away have lost their salvation. Help us process that theologically. Yeah. So theologically, I, you know, I, I believe that human beings are conceived in sin, that we are totally depraved, meaning that we don't naturally seek after God. That's what Romans 3, 10 and 11 teaches us, that we don't seek after God. We're not injured. We're literally dead in our trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2, that we have a terminal illness. We, we are born to die, essentially, physically and spiritually, and that we, we do not have a true and abiding desire to pursue the truth of God's word or surrender ourselves to him. So in order to be saved, it requires a supernatural work of God to invade our lives, to help us to understand truth, to convict us of our sin, to regenerate us, and to cause us to be justified, to be born again. So this is a what we call a monergistic act. It's one energy. It's from God. We don't contribute to it. God doesn't just sort of look through the tunnel of time and say, well, you know, Aaron and Eric are probably going to be pretty good guys, so I'll, I'll make sure that they get an extra special exposure to the gospel. God, by his sovereign grace, seeks us out and through the work of his spirit, regenerates us and makes us new. 
So our justification is solely of God. We don't, again, we don't contribute to it. We don't earn it. And again, we don't even desire it by nature. Our wills are in bondage to sin. And it's not until the Holy Spirit comes into our lives and frees us that we have a freed will to pursue the things of God. So I I believe this wholeheartedly. I think it's crystal clear in the word of God that what I've said is true. So that means that our justification, our standing with God is neither attained nor is it retained by you or by me. But at the same time, the scriptures call us to persevere in our faith and it issues warnings to those who would not persevere. So if you sort of picture, if we were to step out of our world into the mind of God and we were to be exposed to everything that God knows, we would discover who the truly born again, who the truly regenerate people on planet earth are. Because God knows. God knows who the real, authentic, bona fide believers are that have had the Lord Jesus Christ's blood applied to their sin and who have been forgiven of their sin. Now, down here on planet earth, I mean, God has revealed much to us, but in terms of our salvation, when we're justified, it's not like we get a letter or a special tattoo, you know, what's imprinted on our forearm. It says, you know, a big J that says justified. So how is it that a person can know, can be assured, which is a biblical word, of their faith? Well, there has to be correct belief. So you have to be believing in the right Jesus, the right content, the full gospel message to have repented of your sins and put your faith in Christ. So there has to be an understanding of and a proper response to the gospel. But then there's also going to necessarily and inevitably be spiritual fruit that's born out of that that will prove in space and time to you and to the watching world that you are the real deal, that you are actually a Christian. And too often people say, well, you know, in order to guard the doctrine of justification, we're not even going to talk about works after salvation. We're not going to talk about that. Well, while where we need to bring clarity is that while justification is monergistic, there's also something in, in life called sanctification, which is synergistic, which is now that we're born again, the spirit of God is going to work in our lives through his people, through preaching, through the reading of the word, through prayer, through the spiritual disciplines, through the inward working of God's spirit to rebuke us, to correct us, to train us in righteousness. And when that fruit is evident in our lives, our assurance grows and grows and grows and grows and grows and grows. So I remember when I was first saved, it was in October of 1979. I, I, my, my eyes were open to truth and I knew that Jesus Christ was the way, the truth and the life. And I wholly put my faith in him and trusted in him for my salvation. But every once in a while in those early years, because I was still very young and I was immature, I would doubt. I would wonder, like, do, am I really saved? Like, do I, am I really regenerate? But over time, as I saw things taking place in my life, transformation taking place that I couldn't accredit to myself or credit to myself, my assurance of salvation grew so that I no longer doubt my salvation. So I do believe that a person can have you know, as much assurance as you can possibly have as a human being of their salvation. But where you cannot have assurance and shouldn't have assurance is when you believe wholeheartedly in the gospel, but you fail to live in light of it habitually in an ongoing way. When you're comfortable with sin, when you're unrepentant, when you don't confess your sin, when you refuse to persevere. Now, this tension that I'm describing essentially is taught in passages like Colossians 1, so in Colossians 1, it talks about, and I'm looking, I'm going to look at verses 22, 21 to 23. It identifies who we once were. So it says, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind. So again, we're not spiritually neutral. We're hostile to God by nature. How do we express that? By doing evil deeds. So that's the, that's the life before Christ. Verse 22, 
He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. Christ, through his death, reconciled us to God. And here's his goal. This is the last part of verse 22. In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. But then we have this interesting conditional clause again. If indeed you continue in the faith. So what I'm seeing there is I see life before Christ, excuse me, (coughs) then the work of Christ in reconciling us, which we do not contribute to, but then a warning. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel, not adopting another gospel, not denying Christ, not disbelieving in the reality of the resurrection that you heard, which you've which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. So there there is both the reality that our salvation, our justification is wholly grounded, founded, rooted in the exclusive work of the Lord Jesus Christ alone, that we contribute absolutely nothing to our salvation. But there's also a call to persevere. And the idea here is that if you don't persevere, you're revealing something. You're revealing that you're not a true convert. Now, when we're talking about perseverance, we're not talking about falling away for a week, a month, backsliding. Obviously, there's Christians that go through highs and lows, ups and downs. But when a person in word, thought, or deed habitually, consistently abandons Christ, either the content of the gospel or the application of the gospel, their assurance is in the toilet. They, sh- they, they should doubt they should be concerned because what they're revealing, they might be a Judas. Now, this is interesting. When Jesus had his 12 disciples, um, we have at the, at the time of the crucifixion, we have Peter messing up big time. He denied even knowing Christ over and over and over again, three times. But then we have in this narrative, a man who's gripped with grief and shame. That's called conviction. And when Christ comes to him post-resurrection and they have a conversation where you feed my sheep, feed my lambs, do you really love me? And Peter's like, yes, yes, yes. That's, that whole discussion there is one of reconciliation where Peter acknowledges his own sin and is brought back to full standing with the Lord in terms of his relationship with Christ. Judas, I mean, he took money for betraying him. When Judas feels a certain level of conviction, it's not spirit rot conviction because where does he go? Not to Christ. He goes to the he goes to religion to try to make it right. He runs to the the, the chief priest. I'll take the money back. He throws the temple at their feet or the money at their feet, and they're like basically get lost. There's no mercy and there's no true mercy and grace and false religion. And so both of these guys, nobody names their kids Judas because it's like, this is a bad guy in scripture, but we're comfortable naming our kids Peter. Why? They both did something I would say equally bad, but one is convicted and goes to Christ and is reconciled. The other feels guilty, tries to find reprieve in religion. When he's turned down, he realizes how hollow religion is outside of the the true biblical faith and reveal, I don't think anybody would say, well, I'm expecting to see Judas in heaven, even though he kind of talked like a Christian, walked like a Christian, hung around with Jesus. He was part of the inner 12. Well, we're going to see that time and time again in history. I don't know how much time you've spent with people who are super committed to other world religions, but I have, I've spent a lot of time with Muslims and a few Hindus in particular that are, and and even people from aberrant Christian sects like Jehovah's Witnesses, who are very, 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 very committed to their faith. And when you're around them, it's it's like, man, I, I never realized people could be as committed to their faith, which is false, as I am to mine, which I know to be true. This is weird. Because at times we actually give ourselves credit for our sincerity. Well, I'm a true Christian because I just really, really, really believe. I'm just really, really, really sincere. Well, you can be sincere and sincerely wrong. You can be a very sincere Muslim, but be sincerely wrong because you're believing in a false God. 
you can be a very, very serious and committed Jehovah's Witness, but your Christ isn't my Christ. He's not the eternal son of a living God. So since you don't get points for sincerity, and this is where Christians have to make sure that the content of their faith is orthodox, but at the same time, there has to be orthopraxy. So if people are attracted to Islam and are super committed to it and attracted to Hinduism and are super committed to it and attracted to Buddhism and are super committed to it, but aren't actually saved, why, why does it surprise us so much that people at times will be attracted to this religion called Christianity, even biblical Christianity, want to be in our churches, want to study to be clergymen, want to be youth leaders, want to attend every week, want to be super committed, but over time are revealed to be fakes. They're not really regenerate. Some of them will aspire to high office. Some of them will earn advanced degrees and become clergymen, clerics. So it's it's not enough to say, well, I know that I'm I'm a Christian because I'm just really, really, really committed to it. You have to have correct belief, but you also persevere. And so it's it's important for us to assess ourselves for signs of apostasy because there are people in the Christian church today that aren't actually regenerate, that haven't actually been justified in the eyes of God, that are very vulnerable. They, they need to be evangelized, actually, but they're, they're vulnerable. They may be teetering on the brink of apostasy. So that being said, what are, what are some of the warning signs that a person is falling away or at least exhibiting the symptoms of apostasy? Like what are, talk about that a little bit. Yeah. So, okay. So two words I'll bring back to the table. Orthodoxy, the straight way, an orthopedic surgeon straightens your broken bones. So ortho meaning straight way. Orthodoxy is walking the straight way, following the truths, the historic truths of Christianity. You're like, what are the historic truths of Christianity? Well, they're well enunciated in our Christian creeds, right? So you don't call someone heretic because they have a different view of you on the sign gifts, women in ministry, or baptism mode, baptismal modes. Those are distinctives. Those are things for us to debate and discuss and have convictions over. But those aren't, you don't call someone a heretic because they have a different view of you than you do on those issues. But you are a heretic if you deny the triunity of God, that God is three persons eternally existing in one essence. You are a heretic if you deny the virgin birth, you know, the second coming. You are a heretic if you deny the authority of scripture. So there there are. A, a person can apostatize from the Christian faith who's because they become a heretic. They just, I don't believe in the Trinity anymore. I don't believe that Jesus Christ is the son of the living God. That can happen. But in all honesty, Eric, that's pretty rare for someone just to go from orthodox to heterodox to a heretic. It doesn't happen very often. Then we have orthopraxy, which is the proper, straightforward application of the Word of God. So living by the moral standards of the Lord Jesus Christ, obeying Scripture, obeying the statutes and commandments of the Word of God, living an actual Christ-like life, that's orthopraxy. And what I have observed is that it usually starts in terms of its expression with an abandonment of orthopraxy. It usually starts with an abandonment of Christian living, which eventually, almost without exception, spills over into an abandonment of orthodoxy. Okay? So, again, as I've said earlier, I'll use the word inextricably linked. There is an inextricable link between orthodoxy and orthopraxy. So, uh, an apostate isn't just someone that's you know, living for Jesus, but denies Trinitarian theology, although they, they would be qualified as an apostate if they did that, but oftentimes falls into sin. So some of the things I've observed is, um, well, let me just start with, I, I want to read a passage from Second Peter chapter 2, okay? Because this this is similar to the, the one I read from Colossians 1, but same idea. 
it says, and this is a warning for, this is Second uh, Peter 2.20. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandments delivered to them, which is a super sad and sobering verse in scripture. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The, the dog returns to its own vomit and the sow after washing herself returns to wallow in the mire. I share that because I've actually seen this. People who have been saved from deep and abiding sin, who eventually abandon, you know, people who have been, I should be maybe a little bit more accurate in my language there. People who appear to have been saved, people who have overcome, people who have walked away from deep and abiding sin, who come into the Christian church and grow and develop, who eventually return to that sin. And when they return to it, they often become more wicked and more evil and more aggressive than before. They're like the sow that returns to wallow in the mud after she's been washed clean, the dog that pukes and then goes back and eats his own puke. It's, it's, it's very sad to see that. I'm literally thinking of people right now in my own head that I have known that have stepped out of great sinful living into, quote unquote, the light and believed and appear to have been regenerate, but have proven over time through the lack of perseverance they were not and who are now worse than they were before. And it's very sad to see, and they're blinded to it. Often seeking to attack people of the light. It's, it's very sad to see. So when, when we're given truth, when we're, we're, uh, truth is preached to us, it's, we must receive it in our minds, Eric, but we also need to accept it into our hearts and allow it to transform us. I often say in my preaching, this is true, but it's also transformational truth. This is orthodox, but it's also meant to lead to orthopraxy. It has to be put into practice. So there's kind of a meeting place, the way I perceive of it, in our minds and our hearts where truth is received, but then it's given life or it's ignored, despised, and rejected. We cast it off. And and that that can happen in many ways. So one of the things that I see, the, these would be things that I have observed um, in people who have fallen away. Oftentimes you'll start to see it and these are no particular order, a growing skepticism about basic biblical categories. So instead of being, nope, I'm in a, I'm staking my life on this. I will die for this. It's like, uh, you know, maybe there are a lot of different opinions on that. You know, I, I don't want to be too dogmatic because I don't want to be too judgmental because, you know, there's a lot of different viewpoints and I have a friend and he believes this and I have another friend and she believes that. And so let's just kind of agree to get along. So interestingly, <laughs> Apostates are often people with average to above average intelligence who who wrestled with issues of truth, who can articulate various viewpoints on Christian subjects, but they often lack the ability to define them or to actually defend a position on you know issue A, B, C. And they they sort of find themselves struggling to even justify or articulate their positions. Many will also aspire to leadership roles, but they're sort of riddled, as you get to know them, they're riddled with a lack of surety about biblical categories. So I would ask my listeners, like, do you, have you actually identified the things you would die for? Yes or no? And are you, have you chosen to believe in those regardless of the doubts or fears or attacks that you might receive? So I'll tell you this, I would die for the triunity of God. I've, that's just a decision that I've made. I think it's so crystal clear in scripture that God is eternally triune. I would die for that. So if someone puts a bullet to my head, hopefully I would have the courage in my flesh. It says, Aaron Rock, deny the, de- the, 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 the triunity of God, the Trinity, or we're going to shoot you. I'd be like, pull the trigger. That justification is by grace through faith alone in the Lord Jesus. I die for that. The authority of scripture, I die for that. The second coming of Christ, I die for that. If we're not prepared to die for these things that are absolutely orthodox, when someone comes with a challenge, 
uh, an alternative theory, we're going to waffle. And many people that I have seen walk away from the faith, you know, some of them have advanced training, but it, it just doesn't seem they've ever really crossed that bridge of saying, I would actually die for this. So that's, that's one of the signs. If you don't have, if you don't have it nailed down, like what are the things that you will believe now and you'll still believe in 20 years, 40 years, 50 years till whenever you die, what are the things that you would die for? If those aren't crystal clear in your mind, um, you might be drifting toward apostasy. So it's, it's important for us to have clarity in our thinking about the things that really, really, really matter instead of just being able to teach the various systems, various viewpoints on the Christian faith. The second one is a critical spirit about Christ's bride. So the church obviously is composed of people and there's a lot of flawed people in the church. And I've been in ministry long enough to know there are some irritating people in the church. Mm-hmm. And there are disappointments and there are highs and there are lows. And if anybody has reason to criticize the Christian church, it's me or people like me who've been in the church for a long time. You know, if you've been in church for 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years, you've seen a lot of dirty water under the bridge. And there's a lot of challenges at times living out your life in the Christian church. But I refuse to be negative about the church as a whole. There's going to be people in the church that need to be dealt with. But the, ch- the church that I have been called to be an under-shepherd of is Christ's bride. Now, I know you're getting married in August. I am. I'm, I'm a married man. You and I wouldn't tolerate us criticizing our the, the other guy's girl. No. Nope. You know, like you're not going to criticize... I'm not going to criticize your bride. You're not going to criticize mine. You're not going to always speak ill of my bride. I'm not going to speak ill of yours. But there's a lot of folks that seem very content to speak ill of Christ's bride to the point that some don't even participate in the life of a church. You know, they're like Lone Ranger Christians. I don't need the church. I just stay home and watch YouTube, you know, or Zoom church or something like that. And this is this is something we have to be careful about. There's going to be issues in the life of the Christian community that bother us and offend us, but the church is Christ's instrument to redeem the world. We are the bride of Christ. So, and and by the way, those that tend to despise the church often despise the church's structures or the church's authority, but they're rarely solutions-oriented people. Mm-hmm. My, my thinking is that if you have criticisms about the church in terms of its operation, its structures or authority, be, an, be a redemptive agent. You know, seek to bring solutions to the table instead of being negative Ned or negative Nelly. Yeah, do something about it, right? Exactly. Yeah. Serve, forgive, be long-suffering. But that's something that I've seen. Every person that I've seen abandon the faith has demonstrated signs of a very harsh and critical spirit toward the church prior to sort of coming out of the closet as um, no longer Christian. Third, a lack of conviction about sin. You know, generally soft on issues, the issues that people are soft on our woke issues. As soon as someone goes soft on abortion, as soon as someone goes soft on homosexuality, as soon as someone goes soft on um, extramarital affairs, soft on pornography, they're headed in that direction. So I feel like it's just a fear of man most of the time, I feel. Yeah, you know what? If, you're, if, you're, if your virtues are the same as Joe Biden or Justin Trudeau, you have, you have a major problem. You know, the sad thing is there's a lot of Christ, people who say they're Christians that they kind of align with these guys in terms of their worldview and their values. Now, you're going to have some people that are going to start coming out who are kind of teetering on the verge of apostasy who who are in favor of these things or or are tend to be accepting of these things. But many are just going to be silent. And silence by the way is also indicative more often than not of a lack of conviction. So if, if I've known you and you've known me for a year, two years, five years, 10 years, and you've never heard me condemn basic categories of sin in society, in my own life, in the life of other believers, would that cause you to question, does this guy, 
I don't even know where this guy stands on things. We had a guy working in our church years ago. Finally, I said to him, after several years of working here, I still don't know what you believe about anything because he's, he never condemns sin, very rarely, just very soft on sin. So that's that's a, a telling sign. Okay, fourth, this might sound a little bit myopic, but I've noticed that people who apostatize tend to have foul language. Interesting. <laughs> huh. um, in ways that you don't expect. Like I, I think there's a place for um, harsh, maybe harsh isn't the right word, but there is a place for colorful language <laughs> and everyone sort of has their own, um, uh, you know, comfort level. Kind of but line. Yeah. Yeah. Like I, I use words like stupid or idiot or, or these, or that's, that's garbage. You know, like Whoa. I, I use words that are, others would say that's kind of harsh. Um, I, I don't use the F word. I don't use, you know, those stereotypical swear curse words. Um, and part of it is because I want to learn to communicate properly without using those as like filler words, you know, cause a lot of those words can be adjectives, nouns, participles, prepositions. You know, they, they just kind of, f they're used to fill in when you can't communicate properly. So I like to challenge myself to communicate clearly without resorting to these words, but they also tend to be a reflection of the heart. Like, out of out of the mouth, the words that come out of a person's mouth are often reflective of the heart. And so, if if your if your language is laced with profanity and foulness, then that's often a reflection of the heart. So, those are signs and signs that you may need to be kind of if you if you find yourself cursing. I mean, obviously, blasphemy would be a huge one, but if you find yourself cursing or just using a lot of vile language. That might be indicative that your heart has strayed, or if it is indicative that your heart has strayed from God. And obviously, again, I'll just emphasize blasphemy is in a category all by itself. You know, we Christians do not use the name of the Lord God in vain, ever. We don't abbreviate. We don't say OMG. You know, we don't we don't use the name we, we hold his name in high regard. You know, we don't say, Oh God, unless we're worshiping him and declaring Right. We don't use his word as his name as an exclamation mark or as a curse word. We'd never do that. It just doesn't come out of our mouths and we need to work hard at that. Mm -hmm. Fifth would be a diminishment of moral boundaries. Uh, oftentimes this is expressed financially or sexually. So when you, especially when you hear of big names that have fallen away from the faith, there's almost always some moral scandal involved. We have a large Canadian church where there's a big scandal involved right now, something like 38 allegations um, of sexual misconduct by various clergy in that church here in Ontario. And that's not uncommon. It's like sad, but it's like, really? Another one bites the dust. Mm -hmm. Well, to use that church as an example, um, the question is, and we talked about this in a staff meeting this week, have you established moral boundaries in your interpersonal relationships. From what I understand, one of the pastors of this church spoke against moral boundaries. So moral boundaries would be like those Billy Graham boundaries where you don't just, you don't go, go out for rides or you don't drive around in a car with a woman that's not related to you, um, you know, by yourself. Right. Maybe the exception to that is if, you know, like 50, there's a 50 year age span or something or you're, you're you're the youth pastor and you're driving a senior lady from the church home or something like that. There's some common sense there, but you just don't do that. It's just not, it's just not good form. Mm -hmm. You don't counsel women in your office without windows. In fact, generally speaking, you don't counsel women. You know, you let the women of the church teach the other women. Um, again, are there exceptions? Yeah. If someone, you're driving on the side of the road and you see a Christian sister in a car wreck and you got a driver to the hospital or to the next house, you know, there's obviously exceptions, but there are some that just don't think moral boundaries are even necessary and they set themselves up for it. They compromise. They, you know, they start texting members of the opposite sex and they're just, they're flirty and, and I, uh, you know, they're, they're complimenting a woman's appearance, which is if she's not your wife is generally a pretty bad idea. If it's not your wife or daughter. It's just, 
be very careful about the compliments that you offer to a member of the opposite sex. It's just, it just can communicate the wrong thing. Right. So a diminishment of moral boundaries um, is often present. You mentioned this earlier, the need for approval by others. You often see people that abandon the faith. It's almost like they work they work a little too hard with, to get that cool guy or cool gal persona going on. But there's nothing wrong with being stylish or being cool because you're cool, I guess. But some people seem to almost have it as like a virtue. They're, they work at it. They need it. They they need that affirmation that they they want to be perceived as someone that is sort of, um, you know, a little ahead of the pack in terms of maybe being connected or being aware and being in style or being, I don't know, whatever words you want to use. And the, you know, th there are some people that are just sort of, I guess, born cool, but there, there are others that can manufacture that. And it's often indicative of attention seeking behavior mm -hmm. where your identity is sort of in the response you get from other people. Well, if you're going to last in the Christian journey, you're going to discover very early on that in, in a good, solid Christian church, there's going to be lots of encouragement, okay, going back and forth where people are going to be freely encouraging each other and building each other up and identifying their gifts. But you have to be careful that you're not in it for that reason and you don't need that because there can be lengthy periods of time when you're getting very, very little encouragement. And your truest identity is found in the Lord. You need to remind yourself of that that you might at times feel like you've been abandoned by your closest friends or by people that you love dearly. You, you feel like you've been left alone and we all, we all go through that. So it's important to make sure that we're not seeking the approval of other people. Again, there's a difference between receiving good encouragement, good feedback and being a, a man pleaser, right? a people pleaser. I'll give you two more. Those that would fall into a live and let live approach that are just very laissez-faire when it comes to relationships with others and expectations of self, where everything's sort of a gray area, where they never confront. And by the way, as people grow older, if they have children, you this is almost always evidenced in their children or their child-rearing approach. I personally don't know of any person who's abandoned the Christian faith for whom that hasn't been a, a challenge or absolutely destructive to their children. So when, when you have a parent that's like, well, I don't really want my kid doing that, but what am I supposed to say? I don't want to break the relationship. I know little Sally's dating an unbeliever, but for the sake of the relationship, I don't say anything. I, I know that my son is probably into a little bit of porn, but I'm not going to say anything because, you know, I don't want him to feel embarrassed. I'm, I'm just going to pray for him. I'm just going to set a good example. It's kind of like a live and let live. Don't really call anybody out on stuff approach. Laissez-faire is what right. I call it. That is almost always a precursor to apostasy that there's not there's not a conviction. There's not like a, an anger at, there's not a deep rooted sadness towards sin. There's not a sensitivity to sin. It's just like, whatever. Apathetic. Apathetic, yeah. whatever. That's reflective of an apathetic or could we say pathetic relationship <laughs> yeah. with God? Because if the Holy Spirit of God is operative in your life and you're listening to the word of God, you will on a regular basis be convicted of sin. This isn't a better than thou message. It's like, are you convicted of sin? Uh, when I sin, I want to feel convicted of it almost immediately. I may not be able to rectify it right away, but I want to feel like this is wrong. I know it's wrong. I'm not making any excuse. I'm not letting myself, this is wrong. And if, if there's very little conviction in your life, or if there's guilt like Judas had, and you just run to religion to try to fix it, you just get more busy, or you try to seek the approval of, of the clergy, that's a problem as well. And then oftentimes, I'll just give you this final one. This is number eight, a lopsided view of love. So the, the idea that love is permissive and love is always accepting and love is love never confronts and love never rebukes. Uh, this, this is uh, a, uh, a, 
almost inevitably a sign that a person is starting to experience some spiritual slippage in their life. So when we define what love is, there's obviously a a tenderness, a nurturing aspect to love, but it's wounds from a friend can be trusted, the Bible says, but an enemy multiplies kisses. So one of the most loving things you can do is to confront a friend or confront yourself about sin in your own life that, yeah, sometimes it's going to hurt. It's going to pain a little bit, but it's it's good and necessary. So these these would be some things that I would uh, encourage people to, to assess in their own life and analyze. And if you see any of these signs or symptoms starting to creep into your life, you need to repent of them and and you need to get back into the word and and work on your relationship with Christ and worship more passionately and make sure you've squared up your 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 doctrinal um, convictions this will help to hold you this will help you to persevere because a true Christian will persevere to the end and if you fall away irrevocably it's not God's fault you know in Philippians 1 6 he who began a good work in us will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ but in that process of sanctification as we respond to the work of the Holy Spirit you know we have a responsibility to obey we have a responsibility to avail ourselves of the spiritual disciplines we have a responsibility to confess our sin and repent and God will God will sustain us but if those things aren't present in our lives we do have reason to to question and we need to pay special heed to the warnings that have been issued to us in scripture. So I want this message to both uh, inspire reflection and self-analysis, but I also want it to encourage people to live for the Lord, to be diligent and persistent in their um, pursuit of truth and their application of truth to the glory of God and also to the benefit of, of oneself. Yeah, thanks, Aaron. That was uh, that was a good word of warning to all of our listeners to, yeah, to reflect on themselves, to repent, to uh, to assess themselves, which is really important for the Christian life. So, thank you, listener, for tuning in to another episode of Leadership Now with Dr. Aaron Rock. You can find more episodes on major podcasting platforms like Spotify, Audible, Apple Music, Apple Podcasts, Podbean, wherever you find your podcasts, and you can rate and comment there too. And also on the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network app and on CJXC Radio. So tune in for another episode next week. God bless and keep the faith.